If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorization number TP slash 01005. Welcome to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Do you have a mate that doesn't seem great? Maybe their team is up, but they're still down. A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? Welcome to the Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Brereton. This is a show where we talk to people from across the sporting landscape and discuss issues surrounding mental health the struggles, the successes and ways in which we can all support each other through the challenges that life presents. And just a heads up, listeners, we're possibly heading into some challenging emotional territory, so if tonight's discussion brings up tough feelings or experiences and you need some extra support, we urge you to reach out to someone you trust or contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Our guest tonight is a resilience and high-performance coach whose career has seen him work with Olympic athletes and at the highest level of the AFL. He was an integral part of Collingwood's 2010 Premiership team, while he was also recognised for his work in helping to take the Magpies to grand finals in 2002, 2003 and 11. also. He's a doctor in exercise physiology and founder of the Nick Foundation, an organisation born out of a deep personal tragedy. It's my pleasure to welcome David Buttervent to the conversations that could for Are You OK? How are you going, David? I'm going very well, Dermot. Yourself, how are you? I'm I'm pretty good, pretty good. Now, we are going to take you down the path of talking to us about the Nick Foundation and the likes, but Buttervent is a very strong name in the AFL world for well, I don't know if so much that people would hear it and shudder and think, oh, no, not another one of those time trials, not another one of those pre-season <laughs> camps. But let's talk about you first and, and the path, the road you got to take, to take you to um, into becoming one of the best-known uh, uh, trainers. Oh, how do we say trainers? What, what, what would you professionally call yourself? Oh, look, I mean, back in the day, I was fitness advisor and then went into kind of morphed into, you know, kind of high performance manager. Yeah. 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 Well, you played two games with the Tigers. I did. My first game I played a halfback flank against North Melbourne. Then the next game I played in the midfield. So, um, yeah, so they're, they're my musicians. So it um, wasn't really a halfback flank. I played more as a junior, as a forward on baller. So that was my main role. Nah, it wasn't much trouble as a footballer, Dermy, I must admit. I mean, I, I loved it, loved footy, loved as a kid, and I had an opportunity. But nah, look, was, uh, I really you know, pride myself on fitness and stuff like that, which probably got me a game. But um, yeah, I was lucky to play a couple of games. And I'm very grateful for that. Being the high performance manager, you've had arguably 46 weeks to trump up, to plump up, to get them absolutely in spick and span shape. 46 weeks culminates yeah. in a week like this week, grand final week. 
Is there pressure on the high performance manager grand final week? It's actually interesting. You know, it's kind of what is what is pressure, and I think it's basically when you've prepared teams, and this is not just in the four to six weeks, it's obviously the years before and so forth, you become kind of confident in your preparation, the process and systems you put in place. And I think what happens when you spend too much time on the outcome, that's when you feel the pressure. There's there's kind of an, an element of excitement, definitely. Um, the pressure within, you know what, you just got to trust yourself, trust your systems, trust your staff, and more importantly, trust your coaches and, and your players that, okay, we're going to go into this game uh, fully prepared and knowing full well, if we go out, do our best, hopefully the outcome is a positive one. That was my take, you know, really in being involved in the grand finals, realising, well, okay, we, we've done the best we possibly could. There's nothing else we can do. Um, and then you let, let it happen, really, let it unfold. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of you, you a lot of noise, and as you would be fully aware of the amount of grand finals you've been involved with. There's a lot of external noise, but a lot of that is inconsequential really to your process and systems you put in place. Can I ask you, and I know you are too polite to actually ever step across anybody's toes, would someone like Luke Beveridge, would he be consulting his high-performance manager, coach, and say, uh, someone like Steph Martin, how many minutes can I get out of him this week? What are the loads? What is he capable of? How do I go uh, running him on the field in certain situations? Is that high-performance area? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that whole collaborative intelligence, you know, being able to ask those kind of confronting questions. I mean, having your team and having your, your key people to ask those questions. And I think, I mean, all coaches would no doubt would, would ask those questions. You know, they're prepared to talk about and, and confront those issues because really in a way you've got to park your ego. This is about performance. So you talk about things that may, may not work and things that will work. Um, it's about kind of, okay, work in collaboration. Let's get the best outcome here. So def- definitely they would ask those questions and I think and challenge those questions as well. You really want them to have, you know, have a voice but contribute what may be the best outcome for the club. I remember Kevin Sheedy talking after a grand final. He's talking about Mark McCurry, who only played about 35, 40 minutes on the day. And Sheedy's answer after the game when they lost was, well, we picked him to play 40 minutes of football. Is there a cutoff point where the high-performance coach says, that's all you can get out of him, and the coach says, that's not enough? Yeah, definitely. That's a really good question. You've got to win the game. And and uh, basically that may mean that players are on the brink of breaking down, but no, you're there to win the game. And if you can really push it, well, that's what you do. So ve- therefore, you you don't want to compromise yourself with a plan. Sometimes you have to have a little bit of poetic license to, uh, hey, we're, we're here to win here, this. And this may sometimes um, compromise an injury, but that's what... You know, you know, the players prepared for that, how you do it. You just got to do it. Compared yeah. To yeah, the, I think that's a, really, that's a good point. Compared to the turn of the century, we are so far progressed in the sports science of our, our activity AFL. Uh, I still feel like there's a fair way to go, which we will learn from. We will always get injuries, and that sort of unsettles yeah. people and says, oh, have we learned much at all? But that will always happen. We're still scraping the surface of it. Uh, yeah. How far has it come? I mean, loading. We just mentioned loading. Uh, yeah. Was there anywhere you took the ideas of, you know, loading, even pre-season loading, and the kids when they come in, they only get 60% of what the seasoned veterans get. Where, where did that come from? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I think that comes, you start to look at um, the individual training as a person first and then player second. And I remember when I first started in this industry at North Melbourne in the mid-90s with Dennis Pagan. And I think, you know, he gave me a licence to say, look, okay, every player is different. Some players got a longer you know, training history. Some players just come in the system. So let's make sure we get the, the best out of every player. How do we do that? Well, you've got to be more individualised from a physical and from a mental perspective as well. So it's really interesting. I think now... It's really understanding what what it is that makes the actual you know the athlete tick from all all facets really from holistically as well. Then we can get the ability to kind of really push them to that precipice. And sometimes you push them over that precipice, but that's a great indicator. Say, okay, this is how far we can can push them. We're always raising the ceiling. We've seen that in the Olympics. We've seen it in sport regularly. You got to keep imposing stress a bit of load, but then you get to a point where you can build, you know, adaptation in, in athletes and push the boundaries. And that's the exciting part. Coaches, high performance, medical, you know, as long as the, the central priority is well-being, but you want to do that. You want to push that. I think that's, uh, and that's where we get better. It's usually the nuances in what we do that shifts those things. That's a really interesting one, David, because having played so much footy as well, and you've been around so much footy, is there a case to be said where you need to absolutely you, – you've got an indefinite plane, you're going to take them on, and you know blokes are going to fall at various levels. And therefore, yeah. for future knowledge, you know the mental phase, the mental burnout area of where certain players are going to actually turn it up. Yeah, that's 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 a really – I think that's probably the art of it as well. And it's not just a, a physiological response. You really feel how far can we push the human body, the human mind really in a way. And then I think it comes down to really understanding the person as well and having that open trust and conversation and then giving them the confidence and courage themselves to go to those boundaries. It's, been, it's really in a way it's, – it's, it's letting go. Just, hey – Okay, let's we're gonna push you here. And you know, if they buy in, if they get a buy-in, then you're a chance to build capacity in them. So yeah, it's a really it's an interesting one. It's one I find really fascinating, not just in sport, but in life. I mean, how do we find that better version of ourselves? Well, we've got to expect a little bit of discomfort. We have to kind of buy into that. But that's how we get better. You know, that's really what drives you know, performance in ourselves as well. I'm not going to expect you to give up your uh, your stoolies, that the stool pigeons that you'll say, yeah, they, they they choked out early, they tapped out early. But if you said to me, and they don't have to be the best players, and they don't have to no. be the absolute fittest, but those that mentally were able to hang in longer than yeah. their physiology, than their body, than their design was meant to keep them in. Yeah. Who hang in the longest? Give yeah. us three names from footy career. Oh, look, it's actually interesting. You kind of, it's right. It's not just talent. It's that, that intrinsic motivation in people, you know, and there and there's players that, you know, really have the ability to kind of push the, the and it's usually the guys are probably not as talented, you know, like, I mean, Paul Lecura, for example, real real worker, you know, he, he was able to kind of just keep grinding through and tolerate discomfort. Um, and I think that's that's a real – Dane Swan is pretty similar. I mean, he could really – and you see him after a game, he'd be exhausted, absolutely exhausted, he'd, you know. So it's squeezing every bit of it yourself and then finding, okay, what's left, can I squeeze any more? Um, and you watch – you know, when you see games, you see when guys come off, they are mentally and physically – drained 
And it's usually kind of that's that's what differs, you know, between the elite and the probably the sub-elite, really. They have the ability just to hang in just a little bit longer than others and they just can just keep churning away. Yeah. You mentioned uh, how you started in the uh, uh, the sports science area and the high performance area at North Melbourne. To me, yep. North Melbourne were the Rocky in the Rocky V uh, Apollo Creed era. <laughs> they had nothing to their name, but uh, and you knew yep. that when they went down to uh, um, uh, uh, North Melbourne training ground, Arden Street. Sorry, Arden Street. Yep. You knew that they were training in porter huts and and underneath <laughs> the shelter shed, and but it was yep. they were the Rocky. And the rest of the league was Apollo Creed, and you knew it mentally made them tough. Was, did that yeah. exist within their psyche? Oh, you know what? I reckon it does. They were poor as church mice, and really, you know, working. My office was based under the Arden Street um, grandstand, and the gym was really kind of like very archaic, and it had it hadn't really been changed since the nineteen thirties, really. You know, the old, you know, so I think that it, that does actually create. A bit of hunger, you know. It's kind of like we we don't have all the kind of the bells and whistles. Um, so they ha- they had to come down to work hard. Basically, you can work hard in any environment. So so what it does, you become more appreciative. So um, and then when I went to Collingwood, it was a bit of a difference. But that, at Collingwood, still we trained at Victoria Park initially early days, and that wasn't much chopper either. So then they obviously graduated into in the Holden Centre, what it's called now. But, yeah, I reckon that was an advantage, Doom. I reckon being kind of the underdog and having less, um, yeah, can really can galvanise people to your culture as well. And that was probably was a successful part of, of that era as well at North Melbourne. We're talking to David Butterfant. Now, David, when you went to Collingwood, as you know, Scotty Waters is a great mate of mine, uh, and yeah. he was on the coaching staff there. He said Mick was just inflexible about some things, totally and utterly inflexible. The mind was driven, the path was secure and straight and narrow. But he loved it when people started bringing up left field uh, options to him and he would listen. I suppose that's a a fantastic personality, so rigid in his beliefs and that's his strength. But if he's able to step outside and and view these left – Curveball, left field alternatives. It makes for a wonderful yeah. uh, um, battleground of minds. How did you go the first time you said to him, "Let's do some altitude training in in Arizona, Colorado, was it, or Arizona?" Yeah, it was Arizona. Yeah, you're right. No, it's interesting. I think what it is is an element of diplomacy in how we actually um, you know, present an idea or a concept. And I think it, you learn that through working with different coaches as well and different people. And and Dennis was a bit similar in a, in a way too. But over time, you know, it's how you actually deliver. You, and I think by, you know, empowering people, giving them what are, you, what are your thoughts on this? This could give us an advantage. It's something that could actually give us a competitive advantage. What are your thoughts? So really in a way you make it inclusive, you know, so it becomes inviting in your questioning. And, what, and I think fortuitously I was very lucky with, with Mick that he was very receptive. You know, he you know, he was very adaptable towards the style of play, how we can get that competitive advantage. And we're talking, you know, the the, the micro percent changes that we can get, altitude, you know, interchange, whatever it may have been, he was very open to that. So it's kind of like how you address it really. It's not coming and saying this is what you need to do. You've got to be flexible in your own way too. So it's kind of like I think the delivery is really important and I think empowering 
the right people to look at it and having an open mind towards, okay, how do we get that competitive advantage? What's your take on why altitude training, because as we've seen with world-class Olympic athletes, they still do it. Why aren't the AFL doing it as much? I think the soft cap has really hurt the AFL as far as like innovation. And I think when you continue, you want to grow the sport, grow that kind of, you know, the level of competition as well. Um, look, it, it, it's, it's more, we know there's more advantages, but there is a physiological, there's a psychological advantages as well. And people say how much cost is associated. It wasn't a huge amount of cost because we used to bring corporates along that would subsidize the trip as well. It was an opportunity where players can come together. It wasn't, we could, you know, there was a conditioning element that was holistic. You know, there's there's that physical, there's a social, mental, and there's, as you know, there's a spiritual element as well. With players, they're socialising, they're having fun together. They're not just, it's not always football. I think any kind of camp where you get them away for two weeks and is solely focused on helping and supporting each other is so beneficial. I think it's it's really important for any person really in a sporting team to come together and have those training training blocks. Altitude, you gave that little bit of extra physiological benefits um, that you could actually transfer to having a shorter pre-season and less mechanical load on, on the athlete as well. Yeah, similar to the, uh, the Hawks actually used Kokoda and they had some some uh, yeah, yeah corporates who came yeah. along. It's come a long way from the days when we used to go down to Cerberus and do the mud run, David. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know what? It's actually interesting. It's kind of, and I'm back. I'm back in those days. Would have been pretty arduous, but they're great reference points. When you go back, you know, I got through that. We got through that. When things get tough, go back to the things. And this is this is a life parallel as well. When we overcome tough times, we use as a reference point, and then it gives us confidence and courage. We can get through the next bit of adversity what comes at us. And I think that's very typical. What's happened at the moment with the Bulldogs. They've used these little challenges, being on the road, travelling and so forth, as ways to actually, as a reference point, for turning that adversity into a bit of advantage. And I think Bevo's, Bevo's done that very, very, very well. I'm David Brereton, and our guest tonight is David Butterfant. And this is The Conversations That Could, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. When your mate bottles it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? More with David in a moment. Welcome back to the conversations that could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You OK? We're talking with David Butterfan. Now, before we move on, uh, just talk about some of those trips, the high-performance trips at altitude and the likes. Was it noticeable, the increased volume for capacity of training and and, and the benefits yeah. to the athlete? Yeah, significant. Well, one of the things, and we'd go for two and a half weeks, and um, in that period of time, everything was really kind of closely monitored and controlled. You know, sleep, eating, you know, weight training, your technical, tactical stuff, and then you've got the conditioning element as well. What it did, it gave, it gave them a real belief. Now, whether people say, oh, it's placebo. Hey, if it gives you 3% placebo, do it. But we knew, we did measurements around it as well, but it actually gave a significant belief in them, which they carried on for the remaining part of the pre-season, they carried on to, you know, the later part of the season as well. So, yeah, I think it, I think it ingrains a, uh, an ability or confidence in yourself to get through some arduous things that you use as I said before, like a reference point to kind of give you some confidence when tough times come up, you know, come at you. 
Are you the first football club employee to utilise meditation? I don't know whether the first we, – we, we got it going in 2009 and, and in 2009, 2010, and I'm not sure whether other clubs were doing it. I, I, they, may, they may have been. Um, and it was really interesting when Mick saw me meditating because we were roomed together in altitude um, – you know, he woke me up. So I was in meditation, so about 6, 6 a.m. in the morning. He said, what are you doing? And I was in the corner just kind of meditating. And then I said, what's that for? He said, oh, this is just gives me a bit more focus, a bit more clarity, a bit more calmness in my life. And um, obviously knew with you know, what I had a tragedy in my life and, and he, he realised, is it helping? I said, mate, this is really, you know, it made a significant difference. I'm forever grateful being taught. He goes, you've got to teach me. I said, well, yeah, if you're open to it, Mick, we've got wow. nothing to lose. And then he said, hey, let's get every player to do it. I said, well, we can't force or mandate this type of stuff, but we encourage and be open to it. And, hey, why not? We can, really, it can. And I know today some of these players are still meditating today, which has been you know, a significant influence in helping them in their lives as well. If you're a player and you've got some injuries, you spend time yeah. with people such as you, especially when you get back on the rehabilitation track. Yeah. Everybody has somebody that they get closest to off the field. And a yeah. lot of the times it's the players who've been injured for a long time, long-term injury list players. And, yeah. and they're the ones who can emotionally get a bit fragile. And they do gravitate yeah. towards the person who puts in the most time with them. Did you find yeah. that unwittingly you became a bit of a, a de facto sounding board for some of these lads at the football club? Yeah, no, no doubt. Because, I mean, you spend a lot of time with people, you know, you kind of, you're living with them, you know, you kind of spend a lot, of, many, many hours with them. So it's kind of not like it's just a work nine to five. It's something a bit more than that. You know, you're sharing kind of the births of their children, you know, losses of bereavement of family and other issues as well. So you really, you know, you become a, a listener and you become you, you know, non-judgmental really. And then you, you're basically helping them through to kind of use some tools that's going to help them. Um, and I think it's not just like high performance. I think coaches do that as well. Your trainers do it, your medical staff do it too. You know, I think this is, you know, this is the key really. That's where I said earlier on, you've got to treat them as a person first, athlete second. Um, and a lot of these young men too, they're, they're away from their families. They're interstate. So they don't have a lot of people as a standing board or someone to confide in or someone that can listen to them and with any, without any judgment at all. So yeah, it, it happens. You spend a lot of time with these young guys who are actually, who are fragile. There's a bit of fragility there, high levels of vulnerability. Um, but just keep guiding him, keep pushing him, you know, kind of like you still got to drive that accountability piece. They're there to perform and they're there to accelerate their rehab as well. Um, and that's that was that was actually a real privilege to be involved in that kind of process, you know, seeing people overcome their kind of their challenges. And I probably got more satisfaction out of that in some of the, the games that we won, really, at, at times. But, um, I, mm. I thought it was a fantastic uh, tribute to the people off the field. When I, even when I was playing, when when you'd have the club psychologist, the surgeon, and the physio all talking yeah. together about the one player and, and the fact yeah. that they were able to say, well, uh, uh, Derm's capable of this at the moment. I think he might be fragile in this. And they'd all start to speak and say, well, I've detected this in him. And I thought that yeah. the collaborative effect from people who genuinely, genuinely cared, I, I thought was 
fantastic at a football club. Yeah, that, I think that's really wonderful. I think that's actually when when people do come together and, they, and their interest is to help help you and to support you. You know, I think that when there's a you know the key stakeholders, you got the physio, you got your doctor, you got coaches, your psych, and they all come together. What is it we can do? Which is the best formula that we can actually help to facilitate and the growth in this person? Yeah, and I think it must be so hard for many players and some staff as well when they don't they leave. They don't have that support structure around them anymore. So transitioning out of football environment could be really t- tough for them. So yeah, I think it's a it's a nice it's a nice way when you've got so many people that generally care. And really, what happens, to them, and you would have experienced this when you work with people for a long time. This is you're not just working from a colleague. There's something a lot deeper. Yeah, you really end up loving these players you really they're like your sons to, to you you know kind of like and you really want the best for, for them even though you can be a hard bastard towards them at times but deep down you really you're invested in them you know so and, and they know that yeah it's amazing i mean i coached my son and his mates for four seasons and the final game i knew i was going to coach them i just thought yeah they need to hear another voice now i thought i could still coach them well but yeah. in the final message to them I actually had to cut it short because I was getting teary. I knew that the journey had stopped with them. So how some of these AFL coaches are able to do it, how some of the high-performance coaches who have spent two, three seasons with a player who's had known nothing but injury and the care that they have for them, the emotional Mm. aspect of that relationship is enormous. Mm. Yeah, that's and I think that's what what makes it so – that's that team environment. I think it's so wonderful to be in, you know, that when – but you can have that in, in other assets of life as well, yeah. uh, facets of life where in businesses where people really, they work together, they feel connected, they feel this kind of sense of belonging and they feel valued. And I think that's that's something that needs to be cultivated all the time. And that's probably what one of the that's one of the biggest shifts, I, I believe, in, in team sport. If you can get that harmony, you can get that kind of buy-in, you get that kind of invested time in people, that's where you can really get greater capacity out of people too, I believe. Yeah. Now, uh, the people I know and respect the opinion of say that David Butterfan is a fantastic bloke, a wonderful fellow, <laughs> and, and therefore uh, fantastic blokes don't make shitty fathers. <laughs> so you'd have been a fantastic father as well. Are you comfortable talking to us about the events of 2009 and your own son, yeah. Nick Butterfan? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. No, and I'm and I'm kind of and I do talk about this. This is and I know everyone's got a story, you know. And I, and I really I don't say my story is any bigger than anyone else's. But there was a time in our life and our family it got really rocked us, you know. Really, it was a, a challenging time, and having having a child with mental health illness is is difficult. It's, it's difficult as it for any parent, you know, you know, for teenagers, and particularly now with lockdown. You know, we're really depriving uh, our youth, of their youth, really. It's, just, it's, a, it's a tough time. Um, so being a parent is, is hard, and I think losing a child, you know, um, by suicide is, is really is, is very, very challenging. But I can say, though, emphatically, that you can get through that as a parent and as, you know, as, as, as we have three other children as well. Um, you can get through that, and I do believe you can. Not everyone can, but you can turn you know, that adversity into an advantage, it can, it can. We kind of, once we start to actually work through that and let go, we can turn that around. And I, and that's what I'm really passionate about. There's these, 
the tools and habits that we've kind of done for a long time now and uh, it's really supported us and having support of other people too so to, and i want to kind of clarify this i wouldn't say i'm a fantastic parent um and i wouldn't say i'm a fantastic bloke but i'm striving to, to be one you know and it's kind of like that's and that's a, probably the journey which is probably the challenging part you're always striving we're human we make mistakes um but always striving to become a better version and it's and it's hard it's bloody hard to do that at times so you, you say and totally agree with that we all want to be the best version of ourselves and sometimes yeah. we know we aren't the best version of ourselves but we forgive ourselves and we move yeah. on and we look back in hindsight so could have done that better was there mm. and you have to forgive yourself too and that's a big part because some of the, the things you're looking for forgiveness from yourself aren't monstrous yeah. but they were monstrous to the people that received them what yes. if you can talk to us about Nick? When did yeah. you first detect there yeah. was some form of mental illness there? Well, it's interesting because even at a very very young age, he was the eldest of four kids, and even at a young age, and he was always you know a challenging baby, you know, kind of like from a two year always kind of been very 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 inquisitive, always you know kind of pushing the boundaries, um, you know, highly intelligent, very you know kind of um, a, a child who really wanted to be inquisitive a lot of things, very creative. So it, was, it wasn't, let's say, the normal kind of teenage kid. He was, you know, loved music, loved pushing the boundaries, very loving, very demonstrative kid. Um, and really, in a way, not many people would have known that he had a mental illness. So he had a facade as well. So, you know, that, was, that would take a lot, a lot of energy to, um, to present that. And and really it was, but really once we knew there was like you know, significant mental um, health issues, he would have been you know, 12, 13 years of age. And that was when we started to really put some systems in place, um, you know, as a family and, and providing, you know, providing support. And unfortunately, you know, that he took his life from him just after, after he turned 20 years of age. And, um, and it was really no blame. There was no guilt. We had to, you know, we as a family, we decided, look, We've got two choices here. We can get bitter about it, you know, the, with the mental health system, um, life, parenting, or we get better. And we chose as a family, we're going to get better here. And and I really think that that decision that collectively really helped us to go forward. And it's, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's easy. It, it wasn't. It wasn't easy. But once we made that choice collectively, we started to realize, okay, what are the? And we're obligated. And we said this. We're actually obligated to have joy in our life, and we have. In the last while, we've had a lot of joy and a lot of fulfilment, and it's really, if anything, it you know we are, we're no doubt it changes your actual perspective, but it can enlighten you as well, and I do believe that as well. So we'll talk a little bit more in in just a couple of moments' time about the moving forward. Uh, yes, yeah. so, and with your your permission, just to look yeah. back, because some people will be listening and they'll think, my. Yeah. My child might be a little bit that way. I'm seeing certain things. What were some of the things you saw in Nick uh, and leading up to that fateful day? Was it a gradual build-up or was there one significant moment that might have tipped him? This is And this is up this open conversation, and I don't think I've really actually articulated this, but I would openly have the conversation about, you know, you know having thoughts about taking your life. And do you realise, you know, what – effects it may have on so many people, your family, your sisters, your brother, and then your friends. 
having that conversation and then really as a parent, you can't watch your children 24-7, but it's putting the systems in place, seeing the right people as well, but really in a way that you having that conversation is really important. Can I interject there? Yeah. Having the conversation, yeah. are you talking about discussing that uh, husband and wife, family, or, or, or with the person who is a little bit fragile? Who are you talking about having this conversation with? This is with, with Nicholas. This is with, okay. yeah. So it's basically talking about taking your life. Yeah. So really in a way, he, was a, he, he wasn't happy with his life. And really in a way, one option was to to solve this was to take his life but really there are other options you know so but having that conversation keeping pragmatic trying to kind of you know keep it to a point where there is other ways there is hope and it's always injecting that hope but as a parent look it's really in a way we don't own our children you know it, it is a privilege having them you know we can't control we think we can control their life we can't we can we can influence their journey but we can't control their journey and I think once we kind of let go of that, um, and this sounds a bit weird to say it, but it's really in a way that it, you have to trust yourself and trust your children as well. And mental, you know, mental health, and I think particularly suicide, is, there is a brain chemical, which I know it actually can influence and it can, it can compromise our decision making. And just a moment of despair, it's just a moment of despair that has a huge consequence, um, which is really sad, which I'm passionate about and supporting people around as far as what things we can do to help how do we become a better parent you know what what do we do just and listening to people supporting them getting the right support around them as well yeah. when you said talking about that conversation with nicholas as a father of two kids my pulse started going that, yeah. that, i don't know if i could have that conversation i don't know whether i could open that that door um and there'll be other people listening to it and say, gee, that's a brave conversation to act. Mm. Is there a feeling that it not legitimises it, but it's actually opening the door to it? And, and I don't know. There's no right or wrong in this. We, we're still all learning. No. Yeah, that's a really good point. Look, this is, that's a valid point, Dermy. This is There's a vulnerability in us because the first thing we can go to is ourselves. Are we inadequate? Uh, you know, and sure we make mistakes, but it's having that conversation, and it might be the question. It's really the question that really enlightens people. It's not the answers. You know, we're parents, we don't have to be give advice. We could ask a question, and simple question may be, "How can I become a better dad? What can, what is it in me that I can be a better dad for you?" And really, in a way, we don't know what's going to come back at us. We like to think what comes back at us, but what it does is that soliciting that feedback can really empower someone. And but you have to accept that feedback coming to you. You don't have to agree to it, but but really in a way that opens a conversation. We have opportunities every day to have conversations with people, colleagues, children, loved ones, and so forth. But I think we have to express our own vulnerability and courage. And it's a courage moving to that. Um, then we start doing that. Okay, that's where we get our growth, because basically it's only ourselves we can control. We can't really control others. And then from there, then you, you're a chance to kind of move move forward, have those discussions. And we had multiple of those discussions. Um, do we get it right all the time? Not really, but a lot of time we, we probably did. And we probably think we're grateful that he didn't take his life when he was 13, 14. You know, so it's kind of like, well, we had him, you know, to 20 years of age. And I think, well, that was that was a gift. We think we can live to 80, 85, 90 years of age. It was not always the case. That's the fragility of life. Mm. So, we, you know, it's... Um, it gives you perspective, but also too, it gets you into the moment. 
of being grateful for what you have as well, you know, and, and not conjure what may actually happen because that just creates more fear um, in yourself as well. I loved your explanation thereafter. You made the choice. Your wife, what's what's her name? Maria. Maria. Maria and yourself made your mind up that you were going to inject happiness into your life. You're going to move forward and you are going to, in some possible way, shape or form, if I can paraphrase it, not using it as a positive, but a bounce board to move forward into some happiness. Yeah, and and I think you kind of you go forward, but what you what's happening to you, you're growing forward. You get growth from that, and I really think that we can turn, you know, adversity into an advantage. You can do that. And it's I'm not saying it's easy, but it's like lockdown now for many people. It's tough. It is tough for many many people, and really, but we can actually grow through this. We can learn and become understanding more of ourselves. It gives us perspective, you know, gratitude. And we realise that, okay, what things work for us to help us kind of tackle those challenges as well. And I think that's what it's done for us. You know, this is, and it's done for our, our children as well, really. It's, it's, it's helped them in life too. It gives them perspective and gratitude um, and, and being compassionate to people around you and compassionate to yourself. The last thing we wanted to go down was having guilt and shame. That was just going to become toxic on us. Um, so we realised we had to let go. And then look, when we did look back, try to look with some objectivity, you know, get some understanding. Because if we look back and it just traumatised and just we fall in that kind of depressive state, but we want to look back with objectivity and then, and then look at it at a point where we had some wonderful times. And we did. We had some wonderful times with our son. And it was lovely. We really cherished those memories. And we kind of – and we talk about those things. And that gives us some energy as well. With roughly 3,000 people per year taking – their life, you know, it, it, it's happening today. Somebody out there tonight yeah. will be thinking about the conversation they have with the yeah. siblings of one of their children who's taken their life. Where does that start? Well, that's a good point. Where does it start? I think it's, you know, it's having the conversation and I think it's actually really in a way for, for whatever behaviour that our children do, where it may be, we don't abandon them. We still love them. And and really love is, is a verb. It's actually the doing word. It's actually doing things, listening, being non-judgmental, um, being compassionate, being kind, you know, cultivating those warm heartedness things really in a way, helping people feel connected. You know, this, this is what's really important too. And that stuff is easy because we're fragile too. We're humans and we can kind of, and when we're feel, feeling fearful, we can actually move away from those kind of, those traits that are really important that can help give people, you know, some hope because that's what it is. We're talking about giving and injecting hope into people, um, not false hope, not sugarcoating, but, you know, this is sometimes and it's, and having firmness and accountability as well. But um, it's starting with the conversations that you're there and, you, and you're not going to abandon them. You're there to love them. You're going to support them. And that's ongoing. It's a continuum. That's res what resilience is really about. It's not just going through one period. Yeah, I'm, I'm tough and going through that. No, it's a continuum. And you, and you had those conversations clearly with with Nick's siblings. We probably, well, probably I know. I learned more about myself in those conversations in those yeah. times. Yeah. Really, that's where that's where you you can be enriched from that. And I said, wow, it kind of it does make you a better person when you really when you come back and you start to dissect and reflect of those moments. 
And then, right, okay, what, what is it I need to do going forward in my life? You know, what, how can I actually have positive influence on my children? And, and I have grandchildren now, you know, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, this is, this is a precious moment. So I've got to capture those moments. We don't know how long we're going to be for. We've got to capture those moments. And, and it's wonderful, really. You're kind of like, yeah, okay, I'm, I've got real deep perspective now of life. I feel I have. I still can get more, but, yeah. Well, my deceased, uh, passed away father-in-law, he used, he used to have a great saying where he got on so well with with my kids, his grandchildren, and you'd probably feel it the same. And I said, why is it that everyone's grandparents uh, get on so well with the, the, the children? Why is it that the generation, the two generations of Park get on so well? And he, he was a really wise old fellow, and he said, because we've got the same enemy in common. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, isn't it? Yeah. How do we get that wisdom? You know, I mean, everyone's searching for it, but it's, it's, it's through our experiences, really. It's going through our experiences in life, you know, I think that's – and learning from those experiences. And whether they're bad or good, I mean, usually I reckon we usually learn from our, our tougher experiences and our obstacles, really. That's where we learn the most about ourselves. We'll talk about the Nick Foundation after the break. I'm Dermot Brereton, and our guest tonight is David Butterfant. And this is the Conversations That Could for Are You OK, brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. And if our conversation has raised some issues for you, please call Lifeline anytime on 13 11 14. Welcome back to the Conversations That Could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Welcome back to the conversations that could for Are You Okay? I'm Dermot Brereton, and my guest tonight is David Butterfant, Collingwood Sports Science Director for 13 years and a major part of the team that saw Collingwood win the flag in 2010. Well, out of the situation that was your son, Nick, who took his own life, you decided to do something positive. We've spoken about that, but you've moved on and you made a foundation. And I believe you took in uh, into your confidence a couple of mates who helped you and assisted you. Talk to us about the Nick Foundation. Yeah, it was interesting. It was. It really wasn't my idea. I had two really good friends, and they said, "Look, butters, we don't have a lot, mate. That we we're." Parents can get together and youth, you know, can get together and talk a bit about mental health, talk about resilience. And talk. I said, why don't you start up a foundation? I said, look, I've got no idea how to start up a foundation. He goes, well, we can, well let's, do, let's do something where we can just have, start up with just some chats. Anyway, then we it kind of morphed into, you know, you know, developing a foundation. Then we started to present to a lot of schools. And then then we ran a kind of a performing arts group too, which, um, which was really successful. We had... Oh, thousands of kids over the years, you know, kind of like coming through and doing performances. And my wife was the director of, of um, those shows too, which was really a lot of fun. We brought families together. Now we pretty much, um, what we do is we just generate funds, people sponsor, and we, we send kids off on programs to Himalayas or Cradle Mountain, Tassie, with their parent, with their parent to share. It's an experiential kind of program where they go off and do a four-day program or a two-week program and they really get a chance to unite with their parent and being both vulnerable in kind of tough terrains, a bit of uncertainty, a bit of risk or perceived risk. Um, so they invest themselves into that. And as a result, that gets this great opportunity as a relationship, but also builds some skills. So we, we've kind of moved away from present, you know, presenting to schools because it's all good and well. I go and talk for an hour. It's 
you know, it's motivating, but it's when it's in the doing we learn the most. So, so that's that's the angle we're going for now. And look, um, we had a ball um, book this year, and unfortunately with COVID, we cancelled that. So, it's, things have been tough at the moment. You know, like any kind of charity, it's a bloody competitive business. Um, but we're not a big organisation but we just want to influence one or two families out there positively and then can help them, great. We're just going to – we're so wrapped if that can have that positive effect. So you're sending you, – you raise funds and you send people on a journey. And some yeah. of the issues that would arise, I reckon – I reckon it would be pretty confronting if you were on the side of a mountain somewhere and you can't go another step. And you got dad yeah. behind you saying, come on, have a go. I, and the person's got some issues already. I reckon that would be confronting. I reckon that could end well, could end up in a yeah. little bit of heated debate. 100%. This is what, what really – it's usually the first two or three days. And I actually took my teenage daughter off to Everest Base Camp, which had 26 go. And some days it was tough. Like, you know, the inspired oxygen levels are low. You get some minus you know, degrees temperature. And, and then not just the teenage kid who gets – you know, that vulnerability, the parent as well. So what happens, the parent can lean on the child and the, chief, the child can lean on, on the parent. They can work through, to, you know, through, through it together, but it becomes a wonderful reference point. They go back, they, hey, Dad or Mum, we did this. And they yeah, you did it as well. They're kind of like, they, they're pushing the boundaries. We, you know, it's very, very well monitored. But what it does, it really creates a wonderful opportunity as a reference point going forward that builds their resilience, basically builds their courage. How often we know in society today, kids that we know a lot of the kids are stuck on social media indoors, but get them out. Our Sherpas are all Buddhists. You know, we do, we do mindfulness, we do cold water immersion, we do kind of reflections at night, and it's really they get a lot of growth. Minimal social media, it's kind of really it's a different, it is a completely different lifestyle altogether. But unfortunately, with COVID, we, we have we've been restricted because of this travel and we haven't been able to do it. So we've been doing stuff online, the businesses and um, small businesses and one-on-one stuff, which has been really quite quite lucky, really, to be able to do that stuff. Side issue, when I had yeah. my phone repaired a couple of weeks ago, I was without it for yeah. three days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was difficult to say, I'll be home at such and such time. It was difficult to say, hey, I'm running five minutes late. Yeah. But those three days, I don't think I've ever been happier. Well, this is a thing, isn't it? We just we're so attached to it, and we lose the opportunities of just getting into the moment of now. And that's with most more importantly connected with who our loved ones. But we're stuck on the bloody phone, checking it at the times. Of course, the phone is great at times, and we use it. But there's other times we don't need it, and it's that self-control to let go. I don't need it this time. This is my time with precious people. This is the moment I'm going to feel totally connected. Now, it's a good point, Dermy. You mentioned there. It also affects the people around you. I know uh, my son's a young man. He's, what is he, 22 now. He's got his apprenticeship and he's good at sport and he's good with his mates and he gets online and they all have a laugh and a hoot and they yeah. start killing zombies and whatever, the aliens together online. And But then once every two weeks, somebody won't guard him the right way and he'll get killed out of the game and he'll yell at the top of his voice. And I'll run upstairs, is everything all right? And it actually throws me into a, a fluster. He's gaming <laughs> for, for, for 20 seconds. His watching of this is affecting me and I'm not even in the room. I know. It, it, it's actually, and this is, I mean, really in a way, I mean, technology is fantastic for a lot of aspects, but at other times it can disconnect us really. You know, we, I mean, basically, how do we really connect to ourselves? 
And I, I think sometimes it's a bit of silence, it's a bit of just stillness in our life and doing stuff where we're not kind of absorbed in stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fine line. We need it here, but also to how, how we can kind of control it so we can, you know, feel connected to ourselves. It gives us the ability to connect to people in our life. Talk to us a little bit about the Nick Foundation, nurturing, independence, yeah. commitment, and knowledge. Yes. Uh, how did you come up with that, and how do they well, influence the running of the Nick Foundation? Well, it's actually interesting. A good man of mine, he's, he's a financial guru guy, and he's the less creative of the three of us, and he came up with it. I said, geez, bros, how'd you do that, mate? And he goes, I don't know, just come to me. So it was really kind of it was quite nice. And that's where we thought, well, we need to nurture people. We have some independence, definitely, you know, so encourage. And then we've got to have knowledge as well. So I thought, oh, that's a good acronym. Let's just let's run with that. So that's what we did. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. Now, after the break, we'll talk to you about the resilience builders, which is another arm of your capabilities. Yep. Yes. No, good on you. Thanks, Doom. It'd be good to talk about that. I love that. And this is the conversations that could for Are You OK? Brought to you by Dare Iced Coffee. Dare Iced Coffee, a proud partner of Are You OK? More in a moment. Welcome back to the conversations that could with Dermot Brereton. Mate not feeling great? A dare fix won't fix it. But a conversation could. Ask Are You OK? Welcome back to The Conversations That Could. I'm Dermot Burden, and my guest tonight is David Butterfin, resilience and high-performance coach. Resilience builders, not only is it going to be beneficial to those who do it for their workplace, their relationships, how they handle relationships, it sounds like damn good fun. <laughs> yeah, look, look, it is a real passion that I have, and I think not just for families, you know, we're kind of, but for businesses as well, it, you know, how do we build our resilience so we can, you know, kind of cope with in tough times? So, um, resilience builders, uh, Nick Farr, who's a, um, you know, he's climbed Mount Everest, who's next detective for many years as well. He's a mountaineer. He's one of the business partners, and he approached me about five years ago about running a program over in, you know, in Himalayas. I was tied up in football. I was too, I was too busy, but then we eventually ran a program over there, and then we kind of then come together that this is the time to run a company uh, to help people in this space. But the last 18 months, unfortunately, all our kind of travel has yeah. been limited. We've only actually, like, we, we got a trip um, at Easter time to take a group of, a family group, I think 16 or so, to Cradle Mountain. We did a four-day program there. But um, we've actually had to really pivot quickly and move online and to run programs for you know for businesses, companies, individuals around resilience and leadership, and um, we've got a, quite a few facilitators, psychologists, and so forth that work with us as well. So we've been quite lucky through this period to sustain you know revenue and and, and productivity. So, um, but it's a passion that we have. Nick, you know, he's got a passion about resilience. So have I. We've kind of we feel we've one of you know lived the high performance life, but I've also lived the resilience life where I feel that the interventions and habits that I apply, they work, they've got high efficacy, uh, and we just help people to embed those habits into their life to give them a bit more resilience and productivity in their life. So, um, and that's pretty much in a nutshell what we do really. 
let's hope the world runs smoothly soon. But if it does, and take us back to the time when the world was running smoothly with travel and you could take people outside their 10, soon to be 25 kilometre zone. Where do you go? Yeah. What are some of the things you do? How do you perform it? Who do you take? How far do you go? What do they need? Well, this is the thing we've had. You know, we had a, quite a few groups organised this year to go to Tassie, and that was one. You know, like Cradle Mountain, and you know, we do uh, had the Overland trip booked. This was for Victoria Police. We had about I think it was twelve or fourteen uh, participants in that one, but we had to uh, cancel because of COVID. So that's one venue we go to. Um, you know, so Cradle Mountain Overland trip. So we do things like mindfulness. Cold water immersion, we do reflection, we do leadership activities, um, so things like that. And then other venues, we go to the Himalayas. So, you know, so, I mean, we're not going to take them to Everest, um, top of Everest, but we can go to pretty high. We can go to Mirror Peak, we go to Everest Base Camp. And these are kind of two, two week plus kind of programs, but there's a lot of leading work they need to do beforehand before they just go off and do it. It's just not get on a plane and go off and do it. So the journey starts, you know, months beforehand from a conditioning perspective, then you, you, you know, from the emotional kind of um, mindset as well, things they need to start embedding into their lifestyle. So it's um, a great experience is when you see people really in that experiential kind of moment where they're, Discomfort is upon them, fear is upon them, and that's where they get their growth. It's really it's where their growth and teachings come from, those opportunities. You know, we you learn it indoors, but you build it outdoors. Then basically you can go to any Harvard, Cambridge degree and do that, but you're not going to learn it until you actually really get your hands dirty and you're exposed into that environment. And that's, that's pretty much what we do. And I suppose when you're outdoors in a world-class, world-known yeah. heritage site, yeah. You've got willing participants, haven't you? What What is some of the, if you'd be kind enough to share it with us, what is perhaps your favourite story of one of the clients of personal growth, what they perhaps couldn't or could have done before that they did or didn't do after their personal growth on the Resilience Builders yeah. course? Yeah, it's actually, it's really, you know, one of the ladies who went on a trip and a, and a teenage daughter, um, and she wasn't an athlete, she was a lady in her probably early 50s or late 40s, and and she wasn't a conditioned athlete. And doing Everest Base Camp, you've got to be pretty conditioned yeah. to do it. And when she, and, and this is probably six months out before, and um, and she's, and I, I'm thinking in my head when I was talking to her, you ain't going to make it. That's what I'm thinking to myself. I would never say that to her. And I said, I do much training, not really. Um, and I said, well, what are you prepared to do? Well, I'm kind of guided by you. So basically, I said, well, can you just you know, keep your standards low? Just walk after dinner just for 10 minutes. Yeah, no worries, brothers. I could do that easily. So, you know, first week, yeah, she was doing 20 minutes, 30 minutes and build up. And within that kind of six or seven month period, she lost 30 kilos. And I'd have to say, watching her on the journey, she did it tough. She, but getting to Everest Base Camp with her daughter, I'd have to say it was more inspiring than seeing Olympic gold medalists, AFL Premiership players you know, winning. It's kind of like I was really moved watching this lady. But what she did, she pulled everything out of herself to do it. And it was, and to share that with her daughter, I reckon it would be life changing. It was life changing for her and life changing for her daughter. And it was a real privilege seeing that in her that we have the ability to push the boundaries in ourselves. It doesn't matter what age, what gender, it's irrelevant, really. It's kind of like it's ourselves, that inner spirit. And once we find that, we can actually go that next level. And I must admit, seeing stuff like that, and you do see stuff like that, it's really impressive. Um, 
and a privilege to really be a part of that. So now we've had a lot of different uh, moments like that where you see a parent or you see people in your business, they're kind of like, they really push themselves and think, you know, I can't do that. And it's that usually what's happening, they're hijacking themselves. Yeah. They're really sabotaging themselves and it's courage, but now you can do this, you know? And then when they get the confidence to do it, you can't, you can't fail you. You're only going to learn. Just let go. And then that's what that's when they get their growth. So it's um yeah that's 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 a unique thing which we find when we're doing this type of program. And it sounds like it, it, it's life extending as well. If she's lost thirty kilos, that's that sounds like a, a, a not a terribly healthy person into a, a reasonably healthy person at the very very least. Yeah. So really, what, what's happening? We're, we're changing micro behaviours basically, and it's how we talk to ourselves and self-coaching, self-monitoring, self-regulating, and then and then really putting these kind of habits regularly into our routine. Because really, our habits make up you know the tissue of who we are. Really, sleep, eating, exercise, how you know our thought processes, how we you know speak to ourselves. These things are really important, and basically, that's what we do. But we need to. You need to want to do it first. If you don't want to do it, it's not going to happen. It's you've got to really want to invest in into that change. Tell us before we let you go. Tell us about these micro yeah. behavior habits. I know. I remember. I've mentioned it before. Yeah. Like tiny little things. I'd teach myself to actually yeah. uh, teach myself to refuse failure, and even so much as carrying in eight shopping bags that really hurt my hands and I really want to put them down and I say, no, you get all the way. You get all the way inside with them and then yeah. I let them down on the bench as quick as I can and I'll, the yeah. only thing my hands aren't doing is bleeding. <laughs> and just things like that, teaching myself no. to refuse to give in. Is that a micro behaviour type thing you're talking Absolutely. about? No, absolutely, Dermot. I think in a way, if we do something every day that creates some discomfort, it, it, it what it does, it, build, it builds upon us and it gives us the ability or build this kind of, I don't know, this armour to, to deal with adversity. I know I think this is a thing, by doing something every day, we may not like doing it, but it's how we feel later. It's like getting to bed a bit earlier, sleeping a bit better, eating healthier food, doing exercise, whether it's mindfulness, showing some compassion or kindness to someone by doing it's it, sometimes it's, it's it's a challenge but doing it you're going to feel better in yourself the outcome that's why we need to focus on the outcome and it really in a way once we feel these do these kind of habits on a regular basis it really becomes the tissue of ourselves we know the harder things in life gives it an easy life easy things we do buddy it just gives you more despair it gives you a harder life it's easy sitting on the couch watch you know, eight hours of Netflix and have a pack of Tim Tams and half a dozen stubbies. It's easy to do that. So what? it's just, it's really in a way, everyone's got their own little journey, but find something you can do that creates a little bit of discomfort every day, just a little bit. And then you just build upon that, build upon that, and all of a sudden your life starts shifting a bit. A little you know, bit like the old coaches more. when they say, the harder I work, the harder it is to, to give up. It's the I can succeed syndrome. Yeah. That, you know what, that's that's really in a way, this is, gives you the confidence and courage to keep moving forward. I can do that. You know, I can speak this way. You know, and basically over time, you're just self-coaching, but it actually it fulfills a kind of a momentum in yourself to go forward. Yeah, that, you know, it's, and it's really whatever that may be. Sometimes, you know, like in winter, just go and walk around the block with your T-shirt on. You might feel a bit cold. 
but it might help you express a bit of gratitude towards someone who hasn't got warmth. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it, and it shifts us from a physiological point of view as well. Um, I'm yeah, doing that tonight. I think it's, it's I'm doing that yeah. tonight. Somebody will see some old bloke walking around Mentone at 7.30 at night with his <laughs> in a tank top. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I tell you, I'm, I'm a big look. I'm a I'm big in the cold water. Love it. I do my mindfulness in cold water every day, and it just what it is. Do I like doing it? I don't necessarily like doing it, but I know how I feel after it. I feel alive. I feel present. I feel connected. I'm not saying do cold showers every day. If you do it, great. But if you you know, but this is the stuff that can actually start to shift you and do it regularly. Then over time, it just becomes part of you. It really, that's from all the different habits. So they're the things we kind of talk and help coach that into people. And it could be just as simple as how they communicate to themselves, really. And, then, and once that improves, you improve with others, really. But as I know I will, but uh, for some people out there, would love to learn a little bit more about Resilience Builders. What, how do they yeah. find you? How do they get in touch? Yeah. yeah, just go to our website. It's, you know, obviously resiliencebuilders.com.au and there's, you know, there's links there you can connect on to us. From, you know, from your small kind of businesses that, that need online programs and one-on-one coaching, which we do a lot of as well, team building activities as well. So the two two areas we really work on is is really on resilience and leadership. You know, we've, we've had a lot of school staff, um, you know, students, small business and big businesses. We've had a lot of big businesses come through as well. Um, so really, we you know, we cater the syllabus to meet people's needs as well. So it's kind of it's not just off the shelf type of program. It becomes more specific to people's needs and wants. Well, yeah. David Butterfand, I've known you for known of you for twenty years. I've walked past, nodded, said hello, how you going, and that's it. Uh, I wish I had I had more conversations with you along the way. What a thoroughly interesting, entertaining, and informative chat it has been. Thank you very much. I got you, Jeremy. You're welcome. I think that having opportunities these type of podcasts, if someone goes away and takes one message and, and can embed that into life and have a positive shift, I reckon you're doing a fantastic job. Um, continue that, that energy, mate. I reckon that's so important for our community. Thanks, Butters. Uh, I really appreciate you going to some difficult areas tonight. And if our conversations have raised some issues for you, you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 46 or Lifeline on 13 11 14, and that is 24 hours a day. If you've enjoyed this episode of The Conversations That Could for Are You OK? and you'd like to share it with a friend or access the resources in our show notes, subscribe to the podcast of The Conversations That Could wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dermot Brereton, and we'll be back next week. And remember, when your mates bottle it up, a dare fix won't fix it, but a conversation could. Ask, are you okay? Thanks for listening.